Approximately three years ago, a man by the name of, of William Staub passed away at age 96. He was an inventor. He was an engineer. And I found an article that talked a little bit about his lasting legacy. And the article goes on to say this. William Staub is best known as the man who invented the home treadmill. His son said that he was still using his own treadmill up to two months before his passing. Staub revolutionized the world of home exercise thanks to his treadmill, a machine that was previously reserved for physicians only. As a mechanical engineer, he first released his treadmill toward the end of the 1960s. His very first machine was an orange belt that spanned over 40 steel rollers. The motor was covered in gray, and the device came with orange dials where the users could see how long they had been running and that they could use to set the speed. When Staub first developed the machine, it had less to do with health and more with convenience. He felt many people would love to go out for walks and runs, but were often hampered in doing so because of the weather or any other excuse. Interestingly, when Staub first developed his treadmill, he didn't take part in any form of exercise himself. However, that all changed after he read a book, Aerobics, by Dr. Cooper in 1968. Dr. Cooper said if you ran a mile in eight minutes and did it four to five times a week, you would always be in a good fitness category. He said, even I, no excuses, I can afford eight minutes. That's what excited him about it. Staub decided that he would enable people to break through their excuses and be empowered to have those eight minutes each day partaking in exercise. This was the main idea behind his treadmill, as he believed that having a machine at home would stop people from coming up with excuses. The legacy of William Staub. I think if Mr. Staub could be here today, he would have two questions. The first of which is, what's gone wrong with the Y chromosome? Because pretty much everybody in that video who fell down was, was, was a dude. And there was that one lady, but she was kind of using the treadmill appropriately. It just, you know, kind of got away from her and she totally ate it. Um, and, and I think right now, if we were to take a survey, a lot of the, the ladies in the congregation would be like, man, dudes are dumb. And a lot of the guys are thinking, where can I find a pair of stilts? And <laughs> I, I just have to say, you know, institutionally, fellas, uh, that video, that was not a condonement or, or a suggestion of things to do. And in fact, if you try any of those things, having got ideas from this chapel, uh, Sterling College as an institution, and I myself as a person absolve ourselves of all responsibilities, and you are on your own for your own medical care and, and payment thereof. I think the other question that Mr. Staub would ask is, is, is why aren't people using my invention in, in the way that it was intended? Because it had a function. The treadmill had a function, which was for people to be able to exercise on a regular basis in a way that was convenient. And the treadmill had features to make this possible. Those features have evolved over time to make treadmills even more appealing. There are bars that we can put our hands on that that keep our pulse and help us calculate our work rate. There's there's a cup holder for our our, our drinks, our beverages. There's a holder for our phones, for for our iPods, so we can listen to music. Some treadmills have a a jack that you can directly plug your headphones into. 
are even safety features built into treadmills so that if you are using it according to its intended function and using the features correctly, that you can take the kill switch and clip it onto your shorts or your shirt. So in the event that you do stumble and fall, the treadmill will at least stop so that you only eat it once and not over and over and over again. It has a specific function. And the features are, are, are thought out in the way it was created and set forth and packaged and given to people. It was good. But people have continued to misuse it. This might shock you. It might not shock you. I just kind of view it as a sign that Jesus needs to come soon. That was not the only video of treadmill fails on YouTube. In fact, that was one of the shorter videos. There was one video that was in excess of 10 minutes of people misusing treadmills and falling on their faces. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Today, we are going to talk about function and feature. Specifically, we're going to talk about the function and features of the people of Israel, the people who had said and who had been set apart to be the ones who followed God. And one of the features that we're going to talk about today that Paul wrote about in his letter to the Romans is the feature of the law. When Paul talks about the law, he's not talking about something that was set up by the government. Paul is not talking about the law of Rome at that point in time that he wants the people of Israel to follow. No, no, Paul's talking about something that has existed much longer than that. When Paul speaks of this feature of the Jewish people, he's talking about the law that God has set forth. We know it is the Torah, the instructions, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And in there, there are certainly rules and there are mandates and there are guidelines. But overarching, what we have there is, is a set of teachings, a set of instructions that are meant to, as N.T. Wright calls it, help the Jewish people to be a beacon of virtue, a beacon of virtue that points people to the character and to the work of God. But somewhere along the way, Paul has to adopt a prophetic voice because the Jewish people are no longer acting as a beacon of virtue. They have forgotten what their function is supposed to be. They have forgotten some of the features that God has set out for them and how God intends these features to be used. And it is with that context that we dive into Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew... And rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob the temple? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In those verses, Paul lays out what the function of the people of Israel is supposed to be. The people of Israel, it says there that they're supposed to be instructed by the law and that they are supposed to be of service to the world around them. 
that they as a community of believers are supposed to be a guide to the blind. That is a very noble cause. That is a good cause. That is a helpful cause. That is a necessary cause. They are supposed to come alongside other people who cannot see where they need to go, who need assistance in staying safe and secure, and they're supposed to lead them to safety. Paul talks about the people of of Israel as being those who are supposed to be a light to those who are in darkness. We know that in darkness, we cannot function. When it is dark, we do not know where to go. When it is dark, we may step on a Lego. We may smack our shin into the side of our bed. Painful things can happen. Bad things can happen when we try to operate without the ability for us to see. And Paul says, illuminate the experience. Illuminate the worldview of everybody that you come in contact with. Make the world a better place. He goes on to say that those who don't don't have knowledge, that those who are acting foolishly, teach them in the way that they should go. Give them the instructions. Now, you might be tired at this point in the semester already of getting instructions from your professor, but what I do know about us as people is that we like to have instructions. There are some of you who have been spending a lot of time on the Google trying to figure out how to play the latest Xbox One game. There's some of you who've been looking up instructions how to get places that you want to go. Walmart, Buffalo, Wild Wings, wherever. We are a people who need instructions so that we can be guided. And what Paul is saying here is give people instructions on how they can live life, on how they can experience intimacy with and closeness of God. Be the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And there are ways that he says these things that really resonate, that resonate with our theme verse for the year. That we might be the ones that might be able to discern what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. Jump on board because Paul is getting the train of thought fired up and it is leaving the station. But there seems to be a disconnect here as the people of Israel have forgotten what their function is, and they've forgotten some of of the features that allow their function to happen, that allow them to embody that. And so Paul kind of calls them out. And one of the things that we have to understand about Paul coming them out, calling them out, is that even though he says, you, 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 he's not standing on the periphery as an outsider saying, you are messing up, you need to change. Really, as, as, as the role of the prophet, he is standing in the middle of what's going on of the people of Israel. And, and implied in this text is, we need to change. We need to change. We know this because in this text, Paul borrows heavily from the words of the Hebrew prophet Bibles. He borrows heavily from Isaiah. He borrows heavily from Ezekiel. He borrows a little bit from Micah. And so he's standing here and he's saying, not you have a problem, but but we, we have a problem. We have a problem of identity and we have a problem of practice. And God has given us this thing, this law. And it's supposed to be something that, that, that penetrates us and builds us up and defines us. But we are not measuring up. We're not measuring up. And so the law says to do this. And we say we're doing this, but we're not really doing it. 
And the law says to do that, and we say we're doing that, and we expect other people to do it, and we hold it over their heads, and we judge them, but, but we ourselves were not doing that. And so we have ceased to be a beacon of virtue. We have ceased to be the light of the world. Now, there's some development of this thought that's implied Because when Paul says in verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul is is borrowing there from a verse in Isaiah 52. And what happens in that verse is, is is that Isaiah is saying, look, you were here to bring glory to God's name and the opposite is happening. And then what happens after that in the book of Isaiah is Isaiah starts to introduce this idea of the suffering servant. And so with Paul's paradigm, we kind of see an extension of this development that Isaiah had, where you're supposed to be a beacon of virtue, and the law is supposed to be one of the features of that, of that virtue, and that's not happening. But Jesus is going to redeem all things and make all things full, and make all things new. So even as Paul is talking here to the Jewish people, he's talking to Jewish Christians. And I think that if he were to kind of package this, what he would say is the features of your faith, the law and the justification that that, that Jesus has brought, those are the things that you need to be embodying that we are not embodying. And so what does that look like? Paul goes on in verse 25 to say this, for circumcision circumcision. Indeed, is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not of the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. That is a tongue twister. I practiced it 50 times yesterday in my office, just reading, looking out over over Cooper Lawn to make sure I nailed it. The problem with with those verses um, is, number one, we have them in, in English. Paul did not write them in English. Paul wrote them in Greek. However, even as Paul was writing those words in Greek, he was actually thinking in Hebrew. And so there's this deep, rich Hebrew imagery. And there's even some wordplay there that he writes down in the Greek that he's meaning to express and that the people are hearing in the Hebrew. So let's back up for a second and try to provide maybe a modern context for this, which makes sense. Circumcision was, as many people have called it before, an outward sign of an inward reality. It was a marking. We are people who have markings. We have markings of our faith, but we have a lot of other markings. For instance, this evening, this evening, my beloved Portland Timbers football club are playing a a soccer team that many of you are familiar with, Sporting Kansas City. And so today I have markers. My shirt is Cascadia blue with Timbers green stripes. and, And my necktie is very strategically Timbers green. This is a marker of my allegiance. Had it been casual Friday, you may have seen me in one of my, my, my Timbers jerseys that has a collar. Cause we gotta keep it like semi-appropriate, business casual, you know what I'm saying? And had 
might have been winter time as I'm walking around campus in my pea coat. You might have seen me in, in one of my scarves. I would have gone to my wall where I have three or four T scarves and I would have taken one off that matched my outfit and I would have put it on and they would have been markers of my allegiance. One thing that I would never, ever, 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 for never, ever, never do is wear a full uniform or as it's called in the soccer world, a full kit. I would never show up anywhere on the bus or on the train or in my car or on campus or even around my house with the jersey and the shorts and the socks. There is a term of derision in the soccer world for people who do that. I cannot repeat that term of derision because it is a PG not for chapel, but I could paraphrase it. And those people are called full kit idiots. Full kit idiots. And in fact, there are Instagram um, um, accounts and Twitter accounts that catch these people and take pictures of them when they're out and about just so that other people can, can make fun of them. The reason that you don't want to be a full kit idiot is because you're not fooling anybody. You could wear the socks. You could wear the team issue gear. You could go head to toe and look like one of the players of your favorite professional football club. And coach is never, ever, ever, ever putting you in the game. And in fact, most people who look at you could say, oh, no, you ain't getting in the game, bro. You ain't getting in the game. You are just living a delusion. You are living a lie. There is nothing that you could do outwardly to change the amount of skill that you have. Consequently, if you are a person of great skill, there's nothing that you could change outwardly about your markers or about your appearance to deprogram your brain and your body to unlearn what you have already learned. There's this great video circulating on the internet of, of a player whose name is Cristiano Ronaldo. He's the second best player in the world, plays for the second best club in Spain, and he's just, he's just really, really good. I hear some grumbling from my folks over here. What the rest of you have to understand is I'm trolling them and they're mad because what I'm saying is true. And so they're having a hard time. Um, and Cristiano Ronaldo, who's this great soccer player, he uh, dressed up as a homeless man. And he went and he sat in, in the public square dressed as, as, as a homeless man. He had a beard and some frump and, and raggedy clothes and a hat and even a dog and a chair and some bags. And this kid came up kicking a ball through the public square. And Cristiano Ronaldo got up and asked if he could play with him. And the kid's like, sure. And so they start kicking the ball back and forth. They start kicking the ball back and forth. And then Cristiano Ronaldo starts, starts dribbling and he starts juggling. And he's putting the ball off his chest and he's putting the ball off his head. He's putting the ball off his shoulder. And for like a minute, he's keeping the ball in the air, knocking it off every part of his body with the exception of his hands. And then he asks the kid to hold the dog and the kid holds the dog and he continues to juggle. And then after a couple of minutes, he, he asks the kid if he could see the ball and the kid gives him the ball and he signs the ball. And when he signs the ball, he gives it back to the kid and he takes off his outfit. And once he takes off his outfit, like everybody in the public square realizes who he is and he has to be hustled out of there by his handlers. Whereas before it was just like five people watching him. It didn't matter how frumpy he looked. It did not negate his practice and his training and who he is as one of the world's best footballers. He did not cease to become an amazing soccer player just because he changed his outward appearance. And in many ways, that's kind of the example that Paul is giving us here. He's saying, look, Jewish folks, you're here and, and you have this outward sign of, of, of faith, this outward sign of belonging. But circumcision is just that. It's an outward sign. And what God wants from you is a change in your heart. And, and in these brief 
verses, Paul goes on to quote Jeremiah 31, 33, and he references Jeremiah 32, 39 through 40, and Ezekiel eleven nineteen, and Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. One of the themes of the prophets was that what we are supposed to do is we are supposed to be a changed people from the inside out. The law of God is to change our hearts, is to change how we interact with other people. It's, it's to be the, the lens through which we understand how God wants us to interact with him. And, and, and there can be this thing that we do as people of faith and this thing that we can do as, as Western Christians. It's the same thing that plagued the Jewish people and the early church is sometimes we wrap ourselves in this veneer and we don't allow it to penetrate into our hearts. When we wrap ourselves into that, in that veneer and we don't allow it to penetrate into our hearts, we don't allow it to affect really how we live, then we blaspheme the name of God. We blaspheme the name of God. It's interesting that Paul uses a lot of language in here about who is really a Jew. Are you a Jew inwardly? Are you a Jew outwardly? Here's what Paul is doing, and this is where the language thing just gets to be a real tricky biscuit. Paul is talking about Jews, and the Jewish, the, the, the root word there for Jew is Judah. And in Hebrew, that word Judah means praise. And so when Paul is talking about what does it mean for us to be a real Jew, Paul is talking about what does it mean for us to live a life of praise? What does it mean for us to live a life of honor, honoring and glorifying God? I had a, a, an interesting experience with this this summer. Our team um, that was in, in Egypt, we were having dinner one night in Cairo, and it was late. It was like midnight, which is actually just when people eat dinner in Egypt because it's so hot there. But the, the restaurant was pretty empty, and it was us, and there was one other couple in there, an older couple. They were sitting a couple tables over. And so we order our food and, and whatever. We're just hanging out, and um, our contact is like, hey, you know, does someone want to pray? And when we would pray, we wouldn't hold hands. We wouldn't make a big show of it. Sometimes we'd even, you know, open our eyes, especially when we were out in public, just because of the religious and social climate there. But, you know, we said our, our, our quick prayer and thank God for the food and for the opportunity and the people that we had come in contact with that, that day. And partway through the meal, the husband of the, of the older couple that was sitting next to us came up and, 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 and tapped our contact on the shoulder, wanted to talk to him. And, and he came up to our contact, Haney, Dr. Haney, and he said, hey, um, are you a Christian? And in Egypt, you know, it can kind of be a trick question sometimes, but Haney never says no to people. He said, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. And, and the guy said, um, you know, I think I recognize you. He was like, oh, really? And, and so Haney kind of introduced himself. And, and this gentleman, this older gentleman, was retired military personnel. And he had heard of Dr. Haney and knew that Dr. Haney was a Christian and recognized Dr. Haney and had heard of the things that Dr. Haney was doing in the community of Cairo for the good of the people. And this retired military personnel, a person who really shouldn't necessarily want to associate with Christians, say, you know, I'd love to, to meet with you sometime and to see if maybe we could work together on some things. And so Dr. Haney said, okay, yeah, like, like I'd really um, love, to, love to do that. And so they even talked a couple of times on the phone while we were still in the country. And I thought, man, that, that, that's amazing. Because here's this guy, Dr. Haney, and he loves Jesus with his whole heart. And you know what? When it comes to following the laws, other than the traffic laws, which nobody in Egypt follows, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a law follower. He's a, he's a rule follower. He follows the scripture, and he knows the scripture, and he applies that to his life. 
And in doing so, when his character matched up with his works and when people could see the love that he had for his country and for the people around him, they wanted to work with him, even if it meant breaking down doors, even if it meant breaking down barriers the love of Christ was able to shine forth. And that is a man that in a country that is just 10% Christian and only 2 to 3% evangelical Christian, he is the one who is leading the blind. And he is the one who is a light in the darkness. And he is the one who, who is speaking wisdom and speaking teaching. And I was like, man, that is, that is a challenge for, for me. And that's a challenge for us. Because what would it look like if we dedicated ourselves to everything that goes on in here in our spirit? And if we took everything that is in the word of God and said, you know what? I'm going to be really, really, really passionate about there being in my life a consistency that my character could match my works so that I could be a beacon of virtue. So that we could be a beacon of virtue to the world around us. Let that be our challenge for this week. Let us continue to understand better the function that God intends for us in our community and in the world around us. Let us better understand the the, the features that God has instilled in us and provided us with to be able to achieve that end and let the life that we live be a life of consistency and a life of praise. God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity to to worship you. We thank you that you are a God of goodness and a God of transformation. And as we sang earlier this morning, that your love never fails, and it never gives up, and it never runs out on us. And as you continue to love us, God, help us to know how to love you better. Help us to know how to be beacons of virtue, beacons of light in this world. Help us to take a deep, piercing look at our own hearts and our own practices to see where we could be more consistent in our service of you. Help our lives to be fully dedicated to the gospel in word and in deed and in thought. In Jesus' name, amen.